Last time on Crybaby Lane, we met Andrew, a wussy 12-year-old who is constantly tormented by his butthead older brother, Carl. What's that for? Being ugly, what do you think? The boys learn the story of Crybaby Lane from their adult friend and local undertaker, Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett claimed that long ago there were a pair of conjoined twins, one good and one evil. Upon their death, the good twin was buried in the local cemetery, but the other was buried at Crybaby Lane. You know, the average person swallows five spiders a year in his sleep, it's a fact. Inspired by the story, Carl invites a few local girls to a fake seance at the grave of the good twin. But the ceremony awakens an evil force that takes the form of weird, glowy worms. The worms spread through the small town, corrupting and possessing the town's inhabitants and turning them into violent ghouls. After barely escaping, being hit by a train, gored by a bull, and blown up by rednecks, Andrew finds himself at the end of his rope. And now there's only one man he can turn to. Ah, here it goes. Hello, party people, and welcome to You Scared of This, a weekly podcast where two grown-ass adult men watched every single episode of Nickelodeon's hit horror anthology series from the 90s, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And now, we're back to watch the second half of Nickelodeon's 2000s apocryphal horror movie, Crybaby Lane. Also, I wouldn't get too invested in the weekly part of that description of our podcast. No, formally weekly. Yes, I'm one of your hosts, Eli Phillips, and with me as always is my best friend, David Dykus. Dykus, welcome back. Eli, thanks for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> I'm always glad to have you on my show that you edit, produce, and create the music for. <laughs> so as mentioned, we are here with part two of Crybaby Lane. It was too big for one episode, but before 2018 comes to an end, we are going to power through the rest of it. Has there been any Nick news in the past week, Eli? <laughs> Well, Dykus, you know for a fact that we recorded this part the same week as the last part, which means there just hasn't been any time for new Nick news. All right, now back to the recap of the tale of Crybaby Lane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, so when last we left off, the worms were taking over the town, Andrew and Carl had been separated, Carl had been turned evil, and Andrew had escaped. And he was heading on bike back to Mr. Bennett. Was he on bike, or was he just running through the street almost naked? Actually, I think you're right. I think maybe he was, uh, maybe he was running half naked. Yeah, he, is, he has narrowly survived being attacked by the worms. And so we enter the second half of this movie, which begins with something I can honestly say I did not expect, which is a cameo no. from known actor and comedian Jim Gaffigan playing an unhappy customer at Mr. Bennett's morgue. You want lawyers involved? Man, come on. We're friends, huh? No, we're not. Is it a cameo if it's happening before Jim Gaffigan was, like, famous? Okay, okay. It's a small role, but, like... A a, a bit part by Jim Gaffigan, yeah, as the son of a deceased person. It's how he got his foot in the door. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is a young Jim Gaffigan getting his start. What's funny is what happens next, which is uh, Mr. Bennett goes down into the, like the morgue with his uh with his nephew who helps him at the at the funeral home and he says get this guy into a cheaper coffin Kenneth, help me get this loser into a cheaper box huh? go out back get me a danica 4015 oh this guy's beginning to smell at that moment andrew bursts in and explains to mr bennett all the stuff that has happened all his brushes with death the fact that everyone in town seems to be going crazy and now 
40 Go minutes on. into the movie without commercials, we finally, finally, finally get our big exposition dump that kind of explains what's happening. Yeah, basically the twist of this film is that the twin that was in the cemetery was actually the evil twin, and that the seance, the boys just coincidentally picked the grave of this kid, the actual kid from Crybaby Lane, and uh, and held the seance there. And they did not know that the twins had been swapped by mistake. So rather than the evil twin being buried on Crybaby Lane and the good one being buried in the cemetery, it's the opposite. And now they've held a seance over the grave of an evil twin, and he's back. And Mr. Bennett says that the best way to solve this is for Andrew to go to Crybaby Lane and to resurrect the good spirit so that it can counterbalance the evil one? Something like that. When Andrew asks Mr. Bennett how he's privy to all this knowledge, Bennett finally explains that he was the one who separated the twins and got them mixed up. I know it sounds bad. It is bad. Uh, I'm a bad undertaker. I'm much better with animals. I love that Bennett flat out admits, I'm a bad undertaker. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've seen nothing but evidence to support that throughout the movie, but like, yeah, he mixed up two bodies. Two bodies that and each should have had, like, really easy, easily identifiable marks on them. I mean, I guess if, if the farmer was like, hey, I need your help. I have these Siamese twins. I want to bury the good one, you know, in the cemetery. Can you separate them for me? The good one's on that side. Uh, Bennett might have a hard time keeping track of that. And also, like, if he has to cut a body in half, man, he's probably, like, not really paying attention to what homeboy is saying. Either way, all of this comes back to Mr. Bennett. If he had just... Buried the bad twin, you know, off the map like he was supposed to. None of this would have happened. But now he has to, to finally atone for his his stupid, stupid mistake. Yeah, I think he says that he's going to go do some research or something. Like he says he's going to go try and figure things out. Because doesn't he end up back at the home of the, the guy that runs the graveyard? Well, Mr. Bennett says that, like, it's time for him and and Andrew to go out and have a grand adventure and make things right. And, like, they're going to go out together and stop this yeah. thing. At that moment, Andrew's mom shows up. For the third time in this movie, she is righteously upset that her son is hanging out with this creepy old man. Yeah, I mean, she's totally justified. They really paint her as being overprotective. But, like, in this instance, good on her. I... Look, I don't have kids, but if I did, there's no way in the world I'm letting them hang out with the 50-some-odd-year-old Undertaker, like, bad Undertaker who butchered their grandmother's corpse. Yeah, who lives alone with his nephew. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we learn that Carl, who has been possessed by the worms, went home. He told his mom about the boys sneaking out and hanging out with the Undertaker and having the seance, and he tells her... He had told her that basically the seance was a joke that he was doing and that it had scared Andrew and now Andrew was overreacting. So the mom thinks that the reason Andrew is so wound up is because his older brother played a trick on him. So she takes him home and possessed evil Carl is like, hey, brother, I shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry, but we can put it all behind us. And I don't think we should go to Mr. Bennett's anymore. And the mom's like, "Okay, great, cool. Yeah, Carl is very obviously still under the worm's control here. He's he's speaking without any of his usual butthead charisma. Right. I love that after he gives this apology, he gives a really derpy look at the camera that that looks like it might have been a blooper accidentally left in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, like they tried to cut before that moment. That was when his his like veil of acting fell and they just didn't edit it out. After this, at around 44 minutes into the movie, Eli, we hear 
the worst song ever. She's a one of a kind, open minded, good natured, line dancing, witty, pretty, fun loving gal. Got a bubbly personality. You could bottle up and sell. Say you baby. She's CD wrong. Determined not to stare. This song is my favorite part of this film. <laughs> what the weird what is this? I mean, it's, it's a country weird... song, but like, was this song written for this movie? It must have been. This is so. This okay. Just to explain, we cut to the groundskeeper from earlier in the episode. His name is Gary, and he is just having a hell of a time rocking out to this terrible, terrible country song that seems to be about like online dating or the World Wide Web or whatever the fuck. He's a disc drive gigabyte mini disc mega ram ram. Yeah, it's just using computers as a metaphor for how great these two people are. It doesn't actually make any sense at all. But he's like wearing this uh, like Western button-up shirt with like pearl snaps, and he's getting his place ready for a date. And that's when Mr. Bennett bursts in, and and the groundskeeper has to like start pretending that he's injured again. There's this subplot of him pretending to be really, really injured by the dog that chased him, so that he doesn't have to do any work. So the second that Mr. Bennett bursts back in, he has to pretend that he's injured and he has to quit working on his date. And it's kind of supposed to be comedic and it's almost funny. It's just, it's funny, but not for the intended reasons. It's more just like baffling. <laughs> yeah, it's like someone tried to make a joke and didn't know how. So it just turned into this very weird vignette. The whole reason for this scene existing is so that we can get th- the third part of our exposition dump. Bennett asks Gary if he knows any legends or lore surrounding the local graves. And Gary explains that there is a superstition wherein every grave in the graveyard has a root growing out of it, and it's bad luck to cut the root because it releases the soul of the deceased back into the world. Yeah, it grows from the heart, like where the heart was on the dead person. So when you bury a body, this root sprouts out of their heart, and wraps around their tombstone or something. And you're not supposed to cut too close to the grave, because if you cut that, you'll let out a ghost. Uh, And if you remember, everyone, earlier in the episode, when the boys were holding their seance, they rip a root out of the ground and use it to hide the cassette player that plays their spooky sound effects. Don't even fucking say, if you remember. No one would remember that! (laughs) Because unlike... Unlike Are You Afraid of the Dark, where when there is something that is supposed to be a major plot point, they, like, cue up the dramatic music and zoom in close and, like, really focus on it. Yeah. And you, they, they telephone it in. This is the exact opposite, where it's inconsequential that that scene happened, and they don't do a flashback to it or anything. So you have to watch this movie twice to catch it at all. There are a lot of things that frustrate me about this movie, but I'm just going to take a moment to, to single this out. Yes, like you said, that they don't set this up at all. Like, the, there's no foreshadowing, there's no, you know, Chekhov's route, whatever. It's one of those things where, like, if they'd said something, if the boys had said something about the route as they're pulling it out of the ground, or if they had done some, some sort of better misdirection with it. You know, this isn't like Fight Club, where at the end we get a montage showing us all the ways that we had been tricked. Right. It's just, like, said once in this moment... And then very clumsily discussed for the rest of the movie. And we just have to take for granted that we just that it happened and we didn't see it. There's no big aha or reveal, which almost makes it pointless. Here's the other thing. In Are You Afraid of the Dark, there were several episodes, I mean, many, many episodes of the, of the show 
where we would get something like this, like two thirds of the way into the story, we'd get our exposition dump that explained like who the villain was or why supernatural stuff was happening. That's fine because anything that it's referencing is something we saw like five, 10, 15 minutes earlier. Again, right. this is 45 goddamn minutes into this movie, and that's not, like, can you imagine watching this at the time with commercials? Like, you're well over an hour into this, and only now understanding, like, why any of this has happened. Yeah, in the time it takes for us to get to this revelation, I could have watched two episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark and had two full plots. Up to this point, we were just assuming this was a movie about uh, an invasion of evil alien worms, but now we have the full picture. Which, just to recap... They had a seance of the, over the grave of the evil twin. They tore out a root that released his soul. Now Mr. Bennett realizes they have to release the soul of the good twin. Make things right. Okay, now we finally have a fucking conflict and a goal in mind. Yep. So Bennett rushes back to the, uh, to the morgue, funeral home, whatever. He talks to his nephew, who is swapping out the caskets, and he grabs his car keys so that he can hop in the hearse and go to Crybaby Lane and rip out the, the root or whatever. Who's going to stop him? <laughs> Who indeed, Eli? Who indeed is going to stop this grown man? This is where we learn that nine-year-old neighbor Hall, the kid who likes to play Lord of the Rings and is sad that Andrew won't marry his mom, shows up and, <laughs> and we see be that he's his father by the worms. Yeah, he wants Andrew to be his dad. So this kid shows up. He's wearing plastic armor and wielding a lightsaber, and he's quoting the inscription from the One Ring of Power as he beats the shit out of uh, Mr. Bennett with a plastic lightsaber <laughs> and steals his class ring. Knocks him unconscious with his plastic lights. This is a child. So it's, it's, this is hilarious. We were, in, we were in high school when the Star Wars movies, were, the, the prequel trilogy was coming out. Right. And our friends made a sport of buying cheap plastic lightsabers and having lightsaber duels where you just beat the shit out of each other with lightsabers. Yeah, if there's one thing we learned, it's that the human skull can withstand a lot of lightsaber trauma before being rendered unconscious. Yeah, you'll, you'll fucking bend one of those things over someone's head. So Mr. Bennett is, he's very clearly not in good health. He has a this glass skull. <laughs> a nine-year-old hit him with a plastic lightsaber three times and stole his class ring. I've got to say, I love that he takes the ring. Come, my precious. Like, that didn't necessarily need to happen, but it was a, a nice little character moment for him. Anyway, yeah. after this, Andrew returns, somehow, escapes his parents' house, and immediately returns to find Mr. Bennett dead. Well, there's a there's a detail that we have to <laughs> cover here, which is dead. the fact that, like, Andrew goes upstairs to take a shower or something, and his brother breaks into the bathroom by picking the lock. This is the second scene we've gotten that revolves around, like, a conflict between the brothers. Happening in the bathroom while he's naked? Yeah. Andrew's not actually in the shower. It's sort of like a fake-out. His brother goes in to, I guess, kill him in the shower or something and finds that Andrew's not there. He turned the shower on to mask the sound of him sneaking out the window. So that has bought him time to get back to Mr. Bennett's, find Mr. Bennett on the ground unconscious. It is at this point in the movie that Frank Langella decided he didn't feel like standing up anymore. <laughs> this scene is where he based all of his acting choices around. He was like, oh, there's a scene where I'm knocked out. I'm going to perform everything at that level. It'll be perfect in that one moment. So still injured from his vicious nine-year-old with a lightsaber attack, Mr. Bennett explains to Andrew that Andrew has to go out and cut the root of the good child buried at Crybaby Lane. And then yep. he immediately passes out again uh, with these sobering final words. You have to go to Crybaby Lane. 
I I don't understand. I'll take the check. So Andrew now has to do all of this by himself. His brother is incapacitated. Uh, Mr. Bennett is incapacitated. All of the girls have been made evil. The only person left that can help him is, what's the dopey Undertaker assistant's name? Oh, God. I hated this character so much that I, I made a point not to take, take down his name. Yeah, so the nephew of Mr. Bennett, uh, young Bennett Jr., has to help Andrew. He's like, oh, don't worry. I can drive the hearse. I know where Crybaby Lane is. So they hop in the hearse and they start driving. Uh, they're speeding. They're driving badly. We learn that this kid doesn't actually have his license, doesn't know how to drive, and doesn't know where Crybaby Lane is, which makes the entire thing stupid. This is the right? like, dumbest car chase. I mean, this is the dumbest scene to take place in a car in any movie ever. They're, like, driving on the side of the road, and the, the older teenager who is supposed to be the Undertaker's nephew is making weird, weird acting choices like he's supposed to be stoned or something. Or like he's been lobotomized. He's like... Yeah, and... Like his his one personality trait is just that he's slow. Yeah, he's so strange. Like, he tells Andrew, I know how to drive. He tells him, I know where Crybaby Lane is. They get in the car and they start driving erratically across the road. They're driving in ditches. They run a stop sign. The cops are chasing them. And then he's like, oh man, we gotta outrun the cops. I don't want to get pulled over. Andrew gets a relatively funny line where he's like, you're not going to outrun the cops in a hearse. And the kid's like, don't worry, I can do this. He reveals that he doesn't know where Crybaby Lane is, and Andrew's like, then why are we doing this? And the kid's like, I don't know. Do you know where Crybaby Lane is? No. You are an idiot! Sorry. Is this meant to be played for laughs? What else could it be? It's almost as though they didn't know how to get to the next part of the film, and they were like, well, we have to, like, make it exciting let's make it a car chase and they're like oh we have to make it funny let's make this kid say he knows how to drive but he doesn't but it doesn't make sense as character motivation like no part of it makes any sense at all and this whole scene is is punctuated by just andrew screaming over and over and over again to the point where i felt like my ears were starting to just bleed the only good shot in it is the shot of the police car when it pulls up next to the hearse and the police officer, like, darts his head to the side and looks at Andrew through the window and his eyes glow yellow. He's got the glowy eyes. You get a really Terminator 2 vibe off of it. Yeah. So jumping ahead, after this interminable car chase scene finally comes to an end, thanks to some incredible luck, the guys happen upon the resting place of the good twin. They find the old farmhouse where he's buried. Andrew yeah. finally seems to man up, but Brother Carl is waiting in the forest for him, still in the thrall of the worms. So Andrew has to just run for his life. I guess Carl is still trying to murder him. Andrew makes his way to a cornfield where they're nearly mowed down by a giant thresher. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay, I'm going on record saying this. I never thought I'd say it in my life. But I think Goosebumps did this same kind of scene better. <laughs> yeah, the thresher scene at the end of The Scarecrow Walks at Midnight is definitely uh, more dramatic and scary than this. Mwah. Oh, man. I'd forgotten how much I loved that scene in Goosebumps, but uh, <laughs> while the thresher here does ram into a car and destroy it, or it, it I guess it kills the hearse, uh, yeah. it still can't yeah. compare. Uh, Andrew runs through the cornfield and is stopped by all of the town's young, adolescent, female inhabitants. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, this movie suddenly gets really psychosexual. This is, Andrew is confronted by the three girls from the seance, who appear out of the what? corn... 
one of the girls orders Andrew to kiss her. Kiss me, Andrew? What? I want you to kiss me. Don't you like me? Yeah, they're all like, you've got to kiss her. If you don't kiss her, we're not going to let you go. <laughs> this scene is... Like, Andrew knows that they're evil. Like, it's clear from the moment he sees them, they're evil. They're acting evil. They have glowy yeah. eyes. But I love that, like, at the same time, Andrew is still a 12-year-old boy, and he's not... Sh- he's kind of into this. He's very resistant to, like, running away. Fun fact. I looked up all of the cast of this film to see if any of them had done anything else. Uh, Andrew is in a band, and they had an album come out in 2016, so that's kind of cool. And the girl that he is supposed to kiss in this scene ended up being Miss New Jersey one year. Huh. How about that? Yep. Yeah, he has to kiss Miss New Jersey. I would kiss... Anyway... I'd kiss Miss New Jersey. Well, maybe. (laughs) It is New Jersey. Uh... He goes, he, say, he says, if I kiss her, will you let me go? And the girls say yes, and for some reason, he trusts them. And he steps towards her like he's going to kiss her, and she opens her mouth and sticks out her tongue, which should stop him on its own, but instead he doesn't stop until a spider crawls out of her throat and rests on the end of her tongue, and all the girls laugh at him. <laughs> this is shot in this bizarre, like, Dutch angle, slow motion, motion blur. Like, we're just throwing every effect we have to desperately try and make this scary. It's not. It is not. It looks very silly. But then... But then... The girls offer Andrew a choice. Kiss or Chi-Chi. What's Chi-Chi? <laughs> Now, Eli. Which doesn't make, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense on like at all, but you and I discussed the fact that it's probably a reference to that one really terrible joke. Yes. I'm not going to repeat the joke here. You've probably heard it. The whole blank or chi-chi is a, a joke that has existed forever. If you've ever watched the episode of Futurama where they're sentenced to die death by snoo-snoo, you get the idea. Yeah, uh, what Chi-Chi ends up being, I-, I guess, is the nickname of the g- most giant of the adolescent girls. We l- Okay, we learned that eventually, but, like, there was a moment, there was a span of about 20 seconds where, like, I wasn't sure what was going to happen to this kid. No, this <laughs> They start closing in on him. They surround him and start, like, blocking his way out. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit, what's Chi-Chi? <laughs> Kiss, then Chi-Chi. What's Chi-Chi? So, as you mentioned, Chi-Chi is just this enormous girl who who steps out of the corn and immediately knocks Andrew to the ground. At this, I'll just read from my notes here. <laughs> I have here, suddenly a much bigger girl arrives and knocks Andrew to the ground. Oh no. Oh god. This kid is about to die by <laughs> snoo-snoo. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, Andrew runs away, and he finds the grave of the good son, and, and he sees the root growing out of it. Looks like we're finally going to bring this movie to a blessed end, but no! No! We, once again, have to meet the terrible actor that plays, is it the good twin or the evil twin? Like, he's at the- I think it's the evil twin! He's at the grave of the good twin, and then all of a sudden, he gets teleported to the grave of the evil twin? He's teleported underground the same way Carl was earlier in the movie. And we, yeah, we meet this, this skanky looking actor who must be playing the bad twin. He looks like Barty Crouch from... This bad twin guy is just acting the hell out of the scene. (laughs) 
literally chewing the scenery. Yeah, he eats a handful of worms. You want to be in my collection? The Bat Twin tries to corrupt Andrew. Andrew resists. I guess they're under the grave of the Good Twin. Right? Is that what's happening here? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess that he gets pulled underground to the grave of the good twin and the spirit of the evil twin is there. Because lying on the ground is a skeleton, presumably the skeleton of the good twin uh, with the root growing out of it. Andrew tries to grab the root and tear it out. The, ba- the bad twin fights back by lightly sprinkling dirt on Andrew. <laughs> this is not effective. I guess he's trying to bury Andrew alive, but at the very last second, Andrew manages to find the strength to grab the root and yank it out of the ground. And the instant he does that, he's transported back to the surface where everything is back to normal. The sun's coming up. Uh, the girls no longer want to punish him with Chi-Chi. <laughs> uh, there, there are flowers blooming over the grave of the good twin. Andrew gives one of these flowers to the girl. What, no card? So we get this whole, like, denouement where we cut to everyone in town, we learn that they're okay, everyone's come to their senses. And now, Eli, it's time for my random observation of music in the background. Okay. So finally, we take a break from the surf rock, the one surf rock song that has driven this whole movie. We get a different piece of music here in this, this, this final sequence. That piece of music, Eli, I'm about... 99.9% sure this is Time by Hans Zimmer. It is absolutely not. <laughs> no! I'm serious! Listen to it! Alright, hold on. I'm actually I'm unmuting. I'm unmuting Crybaby Lane. I think I lost my See? mind. See? See? Hand here. Hey! What happened? Nothing. Did I get a merit badge for weird? Alright, I'm at a loss for words because the song starts off as one thing and then, yeah, it transitioned into this, like, this 90s, late 90s, early 2000s synth keyboard, like, bad pop version of Time by Hans Zimmer. It was wor- it was almost worth it sitting through this entire terrible movie just for this moment of having my mind blown. What if Hans Zimmer ripped off the score to a movie that aired once? <laughs> what if it really is the inspiration for one of the greatest pieces of, of film score, in my opinion? I just, I can't get over this. Hans, tweet at us, at you scared of this, and <laughs> know, let us know. We know you're listening. Okay. All right. I have to calm down. Wow. Um, I did not expect that, that random observation. That was amazing. Uh, we get shots of everyone coming back to their senses. We get a shot of Carl uh, apologizing to Andrew and saying, I guess we're kind of friends now, and I kind of respect you. And then we cut to the kids at Mr. Bennett's. Yeah, we learned that I guess this entire movie has been another story that Mr. Bennett is now telling to Andrew and his new girlfriend. Yeah, because they are sitting on the couch and he has his ar- Andrew has his arms around the girlfriend. It like wraps sort of in the style of a, of an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode where we cut back to like everyone reacting to the story. <laughs> Only it's the story they were just in. <laughs> Great story, Mr. Bennett. <laughs> so, uh 
Mr. Bennett says something about Carl, about like, it's a shame Carl missed, missed this. And Andrew's like, oh, I think Carl has had enough of scary stories for a while. And we cut to Hall back inside the Hobbit hole, insisting that he wants to play Lord of the Rings with Carl, who is just trying to read a wrestling magazine. Eli, why is this happening? It, why are these two characters hanging out together? It makes absolutely zero sense. Why is this the closing shot of the movie? It's supposed to be one of those funny, like, upends your expectations sort of things, but it just doesn't make enough sense. It just, like, the only reaction you can have to it is, wait, what the fuck? And then Carl is like, all right, fine, and starts putting wrestling moves on Hall as we get, what, how would you describe the closing credits music? Surfing-ass theme song. Surfing-ass theme song. And that was Crybaby Lane. By popular demand, we have now watched and reviewed it. So, Dykus, now that we've finally gotten it out of the way, what did you think of the tale of Crybaby Lane? I don't even know what to think of this. Like, after sitting through this movie twice and after giving it a lot of thought, the only thing I can compare this to is when we watched Werewolf Skin, the two-part Goosebumps episode. Despite all the... The crazy stuff in it, for the most part, it is incredibly boring. We glossed over a lot of filler. There's so much filler, and we still had to do two episodes. I mean, this shouldn't have been a movie. This this feels like someone was handed a D-level script for an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode and asked to stretch it out to feature length. Which is crazy, because it was originally intended to be a feature-length film that Nickelodeon would release in theaters with Paramount. And at some point in the process, they said... No, we don't have the budget for that. Instead, we're going to do a TV movie. So, like, they had already written the script and started casting, and they were doing pre-production and planning when Nickelodeon said, nope, uh, we're going to give you this instead. So it's like, this was meant to be something that people would buy tickets to and see in theaters, and thank God Nickelodeon realized that the script was not there. I mean, do you think, yeah, they just looked at the script and saw, like, I'm not sure we want to to set aside several million dollars for this this shaggy dog story about glowing worms and conjoined twins. Yeah, absolutely. The problem with this movie is that none of it makes sense. None of it is, there's no part of it that's anything you can really get invested in. Like, our two main characters are both unlikable. Andrew is a whiny wuss. His older brother is an intolerable, sexist, bully asshole. Their best friend is a nine-year-old who just wants to play Lord of the Rings, which has nothing to do with any of this, and nope. no character behaves in any way that makes sense, right? Like, the parts that are meant to be funny are meant to be funny because of being, like, weird and out there, I guess. Like, when first Hall is like, you should marry my mom so you can be my dad. Like, that, I guess, is meant to be played for laughs, but it doesn't work. The timing of the joke is not, it's not told well. And then the very next thing that Hall says is, my mom was right about you. You are pathetic. So, like, what was that entire conversation coming from Hall anyway if his mom's like, that kid's pathetic? That is a perfect example of how this entire movie goes, where it's just stuff built on top of each other in ways that doesn't actually connect and doesn't flow and doesn't make sense, and no part is strengthened by the parts that came before it, and no ideas that you've seen are enhanced by the stuff that comes later. 
we're told something about the twins, and then we're told that it's not true. And then we're told that they were resurrected for one reason, and then they were resurrected for another. Like, nothing has any value in this. I think this episode really shows, it shows you the limits of that Are You Afraid of the Dark story formula. You can get away with some of these things in a 20-minute, let's like we were saying earlier, you can get away with some of this stuff in a 22-minute episode of a show. Like, the, the late story exposition dump, this sort of, like, hammy, corny tone where it keeps jumping from, like, yeah, this, like, awkward oddball humor to, like, moments of almost scariness and action and suspense or whatever. When you try to stretch that out into an hour and ten minutes, it just gets... It gets really old. Like, Tale of the Silver Side could pull that off because that was basically like five different stories combined into one. Yeah. Here, we're just following Andrew. And like you said, he's totally unlikable. I I did not keep a scream take counter on this. I don't know if there were any, like, authentic scream takes, but he spends so much of this movie just screaming in that shrill, piercing voice. <laughs> If this had been 20 minutes long, this would have been, like, a pretty mediocre episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? As a feature film, it's just, like, I'm glad this exists. I'm glad it was rediscovered. I'm glad it's out there and, you know, for for the world to see. But I don't ever want to watch this again. Yeah, spare yourselves watching this, folks. Like, this is not something that you need to see because there's any cultural relevance to it. Read the Wikipedia article about it and just read the part that explains how it was lost and then found. And that's basically all you need. Um, no one is ever going to be like, I can't believe you haven't seen Crybaby Lane. It's not good, bad. It's not enjoyable. It's it's just weird and disappointing. There but, are moments of good badness, but again, it's just like... not a, They don't outweigh the bad badness. Right, right, right. It's more bad than it is good, bad. Than it is good. Yes. The last thing that I'll say about sort of like the structure of this is that it what it really reminded me of... And this is very strange, but the humor in this or the attempts at humor in this reminded me of Animaniacs. And hear me out. In Animaniacs, you would have a character who does something stupid or illogical. And then they like own up to it being stupid or illogical. Like the Warners would do something to frustrate people that didn't make any sense. They'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. And the Warners would look at the camera and be like, no, but blah, 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 blah. Like, but it got you to do this. Or like, who cares? That happened. Like, it was deliberate absurdism where something stupid happened and then everyone commented on it and that made it funny. This tries to do that quite a lot where it's like, I know how to get you there. Really? Well, no. I know how to drive. Really? Well, no. Like, every joke is set up that way. You should marry my mom. My mom says you're pathetic. But none of them actually, like, hit the beats in the right way. And there's just so much of that sort of structure to this, where something gets set up and then revoked, and that's supposed to be, you know, subvert your expectations in a way that's enjoyable, and it just never happens. But I was struck by how it reminds me of that specific format just failed. It's like a failed version of Animaniacs-style humor and pacing. Where the only reason characters do things is out of stupidity. This movie looks like it was made by a bunch of people on bath salts. <laughs> the director, the composer, all of the the child actors. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's Eli. so, so bizarre. Oh, God. Yeah, go ahead. But Eli, we're not here to ask if it's bizarre. We're not here to ask if it's incompetently made. 
We are here to ask one question and only one question. You scared of this? Absolutely not. The closest that Crybaby Lane gets to being scary is the opening shot of a saw when they talk about cutting conjoined twins in half. And everything from there gets less and less scary as it goes. Dykus, you scared of this? No. This was a crushing disappointment. Like, going into this, I really wanted to believe the, the mythos surrounding Crybaby Lane, that it was too scary for Nickelodeon. Instead, we got one of the least scary things I think we've ever watched. It's just sexist and offensive and not PC and boring. Do I want to say Nickelodeon should have just left it in the vault? Well, nah. So, with all of that out of the way, what's happening in 2019? Uh, I'll be honest, Eli, I really don't know. I I know we've had a few plans, I don't know what the status of those plans is. Right now, I'm in kind of a transitional period, I'm about to move, I've been looking to make some big life changes. I don't know when we will be back. Yeah, rest assured, if we can find another piece of media that you know sort of fits our wheelhouse uh we will definitely consider it obviously we've considered doing other shows uh, but i kind of like this format of of sort of special bonus episodes based on scary kids movie properties um so if we can find some more of that to do every now and then until we get back into a stable working order i'm definitely in favor of doing it uh, you know, last time we were on, I talked about how I was almost certainly going to have a new show by the end of 2018. My wife and I recorded the first episode of that, and then we found out that there was an entirely different podcast with the exact same concept and the exact same name. So, my promise Don't you of hate a new... when that happens. It was it was crazy. I thought I had come up with something really special, and as it turns out, I had come up with something not at all special. So uh, we are going to be retooling, and I still hope to get a new podcast out in 2019, you know, kind of in the interim while you and I are figuring out what's next for you scared of this. But now I don't have a timeline for that. So everybody just, you know, keep keep your eye on the Twitter feed, keep your eye on the Facebook feed. We'll let you know as soon as the next thing is on the way. Until then, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for listening to this grueling two-part Crybaby Lane review. Uh, if you want to hear all of our back catalog, we are on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash this. Like I said, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this. Our Twitter handle is at youscaredofthis. Uh, definitely listen to those, enjoy those, hit us up, and you know we'll see you next time. And we're planning on releasing this the last day of 2018. We've said it before, but I'll say it one more time. Thank you to everyone who listened in 2018, who stuck around as we concluded our journey through Are You Afraid of the Dark, who has patiently waited for these new episodes. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we love we love all of you party people out there. So thanks. And with all of that said, Happy New Year. I hereby declare 2018 closed. Thank Goth. Thank Goth. I'm sorry. I don't want to be a member. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. 
We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone. The good earth is rich and can provide for everyone a way of life to be free and beautiful. But we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned many souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man. Not one man, nor a group of men. But in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Championship belt too! Ah!